Dear parents, this is an SVM podcast to inculcate a reading habit in your child. This initiative will help your child develop both listening and reading skills. To make the best effect of it, it is suggested to use headphones. Thank you. Dear children, open your English course book to page 95. Now you are going to read with me. Please slide your finger on the text as I read. Milk for the cat. When the tea is brought at five o'clock and all the neat curtains are drawn with care, the little black cat with bright green eyes is suddenly purring there. At first she pretends having nothing to do. She has come in merely to playing by the crate. But though tea may be late or the milk may be sour, she is never late. And presently her gay ties take a soft, large, milky haze, and her independent, casual glance becomes a stiff, hard gaze. Then she stamps her claws or lifts her ears or twists her tail and begins to stir, till suddenly all her lithe body becomes one breathing, trembling purr. The children eat and wriggle and laugh. The two old ladies stroke their silk, but the cat is grown small and thin with desire, transformed to a creeping lust for milk. A white saucer like some full moon descends, at last from the clouds of the table above. She sighs and dreams and thrills and glows, transfigured with love. She nestles over the shining rim, buries her chin in the creamy sea. Her tail hangs loose, each drowsy paw is doubled under each bending knee. A long dim ecstasy holds her life. Her world is an infinite shapeless white. Till her tongue has curled the last holy drop, then she sinks back into the night. Draws and dips her body to heat. Her sleepy nerves in the great armchair lies defeated and buried deep. Three or four hours unconscious there. Good job. Dear children, open English course book to page number eighty-two. Now you are going to read with me. Please slide your finger on the text as I read. A tiger comes to town. R. K. Narayan. The narrator behind the story is a huge tiger who has escaped from a circus and is roaming about in a city. Now that he has the opportunity to study the behavior of human beings in the natural environment, what does he think of them? It was still a busy hour in the city when I entered Market Road. People ran for their lives at the sight of me. As I progressed through. Shutters were pulled down, and people hid themselves under culverts, on trees, and behind pillars. The population was melting out of sight. At the circus, I had had no chance to study human behavior. Outside the circus ring, they sat in their seats placidly while I cowered before Captain's whip. I got a totally wrong notion of human beings at that angle. I had thought that they were sturdy and fearless, 
but now I found them fleeing before me like a herd of deer, although I had no intention of attacking them. When I paused in front of a tailor's shop, he abandoned his machine and shut himself in a cupboard, wailing, alas, I am undone. Won't someone shoot that tiger? A prisoner between two constables got his chance to escape when the constables fled, abandoning him with his handcuffs. I tore a horse from his chutka and enjoyed the sight of the passengers spilling out of it and running for their lives. Later, I learned from my master of the chaos that befell the city when it became known that Captain had been destroyed and that I was somewhere in the city. Sheer hopelessness seemed to have seized the townspeople. They withdrew to their homes and even they remained nervous. All doors and windows everywhere were shut, bolted and sealed. Some even thought that I was some extraordinary creature who might pass through the walls and lie in wait on the roof or in loft or basement. Poor people living in huts had real cause to worry. I could have taken any of their homes apart, but why should I? One could understand their fears, but why should those living in brick and cement houses feel nervous? It was due to their general lack of a sense of security and an irrational fear of losing their sets. Why should an ordinary simple tiger have any interest in them either to destroy or to safeguard? I rested for a moment at the door of Anand Bhavan on Market Road, where coffee drinkers and tiffin eaters at their tables sat transfixed, uttering low moans on seeing me. I wanted to assure them, don't fear, I am not out to trouble you. Eat your tiffin in peace, don't mind me. You, nearest to me, hugging the cash box, you are craven with fear. Afraid even to breathe, go on, count the cash, if that's your pleasure. I just want to walk, that's all. If my tail trails down to the street, if I am blocking your threshold, it is because I am tall. I am 11 feet tip to tail, I can't help it. I'm not out to kill, I'm too full. I found a green pasture full of food on my way. Won't need any food for several days to come. I won't stir, not until I feel hungry again. Tigers attack only when they feel hungry, unlike human beings who slaughter one another without purpose or hunger. We shall resume from where we left off, page number 84. To the great delight of children, schools were being hurriedly closed. Children of all ages and sizes were running helter-skelter, screaming joyously, no school, no school, tiger, tiger. They were shouting and laughing and even enjoyed being scared. They seemed to welcome me. I felt like joining them, so I bounded away from the restaurant door and trotted along with them, at which they cried, the tiger is coming to eat us, let's get back to the school. I followed them through their school gate, while they ran up and shut themselves in the school hall securely. I ascended the steps of the school, saw an open door at the far end of the veranda and walked in. It happened to be the headmaster's room. I noticed a very dignified man jumping on his table and heaving himself up into the attic. I walked in and flung myself on the cool floor, having a special liking for cool stone floors. 
with my head under the last disc, which gave me the feeling of being back in the Mempi cave. As I drowsed, I was unaware of the conscious steps and hushed voices all around. I was in no mood to bother about anything. All I wanted was a little moment of sleep. The daylight was dazzling in half-sleep. I heard the doors of the room being shut and bolted and locked. I didn't care. I slept. While I slept, a great deal of consolation was going on. I learned about it later through my master who was in the crowd. The crowd which had gathered after making sure that I had been properly locked up and was watching. The headmaster seemed to have remarked some days later, never dreamt in my wildest dreams I'd have to yield my place to a tiger. A wag had retorted. Might be one way of maintaining better discipline among the boys. Now that this brood is safely locked up, we must decide, began a teacher. At this moment, my master pushed his way through the crowds and admonished them. Never use the words beast or brute. They are ugly words coined by a man in his arrogance. The human thinks all other creatures are beasts. Awful word. Is this the time to discuss problems of vocabulary? Asked someone. Why not? Retorted my master. At which they looked outraged. Someone said, What a reckless man you are. Who are you? You are asking a profound question. I have no idea who I am. All my life I have been trying to find the answer. Are you sure you know who you are? Crazy beggar with a tiger in their way to devour us, but for the strong tone. This is no time for useless talk. Let us get on with business. What business? What is it going to be? asked my master. Everyone was upset at this question. We must think of those children shut in the hall, said the teacher. Open the door and let them out, said my master and asked. It is not your business to advise us. Who are you? Second time you are asking the same question, I say again, I don't know, said my master. Get out of the school premises, said a man who acted for the headmaster in his absence. You have no business here. We can have all the kinds of intruders. Did the tiger come on your invitation? asked my master. Dear children, open your English course book to page number 104. Now you are going to read with me. Please guide your finger on the text as I read. Section 2. Easily distracted. What happens to a boy who is always distracted? Will he be able to play games? Let us find out. All Hirschnall's report card carried the same words in the remarks section. In class 1, his teacher had written good but easily distracted. In class 2, his class teacher, who also happened to teach him math, had this to say. Brilliant with numbers but gets easily distracted. And when his mother met the teacher at the end of the year, she was shown his workbook. The first few sums on each page were completed neatly and correctly. Then distraction obviously set in and Hirsch had colored the shapes instead of measuring them or added faces to numbers like 8 and 9 instead of multiplying them and so on. Well, Hirsch was in class 7 now and things had not changed. 
His mother never sent him to the shop in an emergency because he was sure to forget the eggs that she had asked for and get distracted by the games of marbles going on by the roadside. She hadn't forgotten that dreadfully embarrassing episode when her friends had dropped in for tea one evening, unannounced. Just when she had got everything ready to be served, she had realized that the sugar jar was empty. Forgetting her son's distracted ways, she hurriedly sent him off to the corner shop for some sugar that was the last they saw of him for almost two hours. The tea had gone cold and all the snacks had been eaten before she called up the store to discover that Hirsch had not even reached. The storekeeper, someone who knew Hirsch well, was kind enough to step out of the shop to check and reported over the phone that Hirsch was busy cheering a game of gully cricket just a few feet from the shop. His art teacher complained that Hirsch got so distracted with sharpening his and everybody else's color pencils that he forgot to draw any pictures with those perfectly sharpened joints. Poor Mrs. Rao could only smile weakly when she received the latest report on her son's distraction. As you can well imagine, Hirsch wasn't immune to the distraction bug on the play field either. Though quite a good bowler, he had been thrown out of the cricket team for some memorable distraction in new disasters. The whole school still remembered watching that exciting cricket match with their arch rivals, Vishweshwar High School. Though down to their last batsman, the rival just had a couple of runs to make to win when a beautiful easy catch came Hersh's way, almost in slow motion. The entire school watched as the ball travelled in a gentle arc towards Hersh. It was the easiest catch in the world and would have won the whole school the match, but Hirsch was in another world. His schoolmates watched in horror as Hirsch sat crouched, peering at something terribly engrossing on the ground. The crowd let out a low moan as the ball fell unnoticed a foot away from a blissfully oblivious Hirsch. Later he confessed, only to his closest friend, mind you, that he had gotten completely engrossed with an army of ants that were dragging a huge leaf across the ground. Naturally, his friend just sighed and made her swear that he would never mention this ant story to anyone else because he would certainly get beaten up. Which is why his parents decided that a solitary sport like tennis would be better for their distracted son. At least that way, his teammates would not have to pay the price for his distractions. And that's how he began tennis classes at the local club. Hirsch fell in love with the game. In six months, he had become so good at it that he was playing with the older boys and beating them. Without realizing it, his parents had selected a game that had no score for distraction. In football or hockey, the ball would travel off to the other end of the field, allowing a boy like Hirsch to start dreaming about what his mother had made for dinner or worse still, begin inspecting the undersides of some insect on the ground. With tennis, the ball just kept returning so quickly, there was no chance for the mind to wander. And better still, the absolutely flat, well-rolled court didn't offer shelter to any form of insect life. Though Hirsch was the shortest among those training under his coach, his first serve was spectacular. 
He fired the most number of aces and nobody could match his stylish backhand. His father got all excited as the club's annual tournament week approached. But his mother knew better. Each week, she expected a call from the coach complaining about her son's famous distraction. But the calls didn't come. She somehow got more worried. Was this coach also so distracted that he didn't know what Hirsch was up to? One evening, Hirsch came home with a big bruise on his forehead. Happened during practice, did it? His father asked worriedly. Hirsch was big and evasive. Not really. Don't really remember. His parents exchanged looks over his head. His mother's first thought was that he had been in a fight and didn't want to talk about it. Since her son was the youngest at the coach, she hoped he wasn't getting bullied. A couple of days later, she noticed a deep gash on his knee and gently suggested that if he wanted to skip tennis classes for a day or days, he could. But he insisted on going the next day and the next and the next. As the bruises and cuts increased, Mrs. Rao started to panic. She became convinced that her son was being bullied or that while trying to keep up to the standard of the older boys, he was pushing himself too hard and hurting himself in the process. She decided to find out for herself. While Hush was still at school one day, she walked across to the club. The moment she set eyes on the coach, all her worries of the past few weeks bubbled over and she launched herself on a virtual attack of the poor unprepared coach. The man was speechless. He had no idea what Mrs. Rao was talking about. No, he swore. Hirsch had never been in a fight while on the courts. He was beating the older boys in tennis so easily he didn't really have to struggle or push himself to the limit as Mrs. Rao imagined. In fact, Hirsch was guaranteed to win the club's junior trophy. With hardly any effort, the coach's face lit up. Yes, maybe that was a reason. Hirsch's interest had now been taken up by high jump. Tennis no longer held any challenge for him. The coach felt. In fact, he was about to suggest that maybe the Rao's ought to think of shifting Hirsch to a more professional tennis academy where they could take his talent much further when the poor man was rudely interrupted. High jump? squeaked Mrs. Rao. What high jump? she asked, completely aghast. The coach looked even more confused. Hirsch had been finishing his tennis practice early because he says he has to go for high jump practice too. Didn't you know about it, Mrs. Rao? The look on the poor lady's face told him that she didn't know, but was soon going to find out. On her way home, Mrs. Rao was furious. How could she think Hirsch's interest in tennis would last a while more? Of course, the distraction bug was bound to catch up with him sooner or later. And it had, with a certain interest in high jump. Right in the middle of tennis classes, she dreaded facing her husband's disappointment when he learned that his budding tennis champ had abandoned his racket for the high jump pit. That evening when Hirsch limped in with yet another bump on him from yet another mysterious fall or fight, his mother confronted him. What is all this I hear about high jump practice? She said, catching him totally off guard. It was Hershey's turn to look shocked. Then the look turned to one of guilt. Oh, I want to tell you about it, but it just slipped my mind. He trailed off, 
His mother was in no mood for evasive answers that night, and slowly she extracted an account for from him for each and every bruise on his body. You remember that Wimbledon semi-final where Marat Safin threw his racket into the air after he won? He asked his mother. Mrs. R nodded, wondering what this had to do with her son. Hirsch continued. After I started beating everyone on the courts, it got quite boring. Really, really boring. So I started fooling around and the coach gave me a sordid lecture on the price of getting distracted. His mother looked surprised and then confused. Where was all this leading to? She wondered. So one day, while watching the replay of Safin's famous racket throwing, Hirsch looked wistful as he spoke. I thought, what was the point of winning all those club matches if I didn't have a winner's style? You know, like throwing the racket in the air, Safin's style, or banging shoulders like Pace and Bhupati used to do when they were friends and played mixed doubles as partners. He trailed off sheepishly. A look of understanding dawned on his mother's face and she had to struggle to suppress a smile. She finished the sentence for him. So that first bruise on your head was when the racket you threw off fell on your head? Hirsch nodded sadly. But before his mother could ask about the other bruises and gashes, he continued. Then I realized that if the racket broke, Papa wouldn't be too thrilled about spending on another. So I decided on another winning stunt. His mother couldn't resist snapping. You are, abs- you are absolutely right. Papa would certainly have not replaced a racket that had been intentionally tossed in the air, just for the sake of style. Hirsch winced, as though he could still feel the pain of that knock from his descending racket. Looking at his feet, he said, I had seen another unknown player leap over the net after he had won a match at the Australian Open. He made it look so easy, but when I tried, I kept falling. It took all Mrs. Zhao's self-control not to burst out laughing right there. But she maintained her composure, somehow keeping a straight face. So that's why you've been going out for high jump practice, she asked innocently. Hirsch nodded, but with a look of total defeat, confessed, but ma, I'm no good at it. High jump, I mean, the tournament is only a week away and I still can't jump over the net. Hirsch looked dejected. Mrs. Dow thought for a moment. She had to come up with a solution that her son considered acceptable, and that would be a stop to all the bruises and bumps. It was a tough one. Unlike all past cases of distraction, at least this time, Hirsch was still well within the field of tennis. Maybe she had to thank Marat Safin for it. That gave her an idea, and she perked up, saying, I remember one US Open, Hirsch. When Nadal won a match and he took off his shirt and threw it onto the ground. How about that for a stylish winning stunt? Hirsch was silent as he thought over his mother's suggestion. She'd had enough of the bruises earned while practicing victory leaps over the net, so he was ready to try out anything. But was shirt removal as dramatic as sleeping over the net? Being an ardent fan of Nadal, he was ready to do anything his hero did, but would the older boys laugh at him? Finally, he made up his mind. He'd pull off the shirts and only if he won the finals, yes. Looking relieved, he said, yeah. Ma, that sounds great. Mrs. Now sent up a silent prayer in Thanksgiving. She wondered if all the cuts, bruises and gashes his son had suffered in the course of his latest distraction would finally cure him of his crazy tendencies. 
but she knew it was too much to hope for. Dear children, open your English course book to page number 118. Now you are going to read with me. Please guide your finger on the text as I read. Sports Day by David Threadgold. I remember a school sports day where we all went out to race. I remember jumping in a sack and falling on my face. I remember someone calling out the next race is starting soon. I remember running down the field with a stupid egg and spoon. I remember throwing bean bag at a circle on the floor. I remember not being very good but going back for more. I remember colored sashes and I wore the color green. I remember what we won that day was an easy to be seen. I remember looking at the score. We were still at the beginning. I remember what a teacher said. It's taking part not the winning. children open your english literary reader to page number 59 now you are going to read with me please slide your finger on the text as i read pip's adventure by charles dickens pip meets with a runaway convict at a graveyard threatened by the convict pip steals from his home and feels terribly scared of being caught is pip to have found out all the little philip pip usually called pip knew about his father and mother and five little brothers was from seeing their tombstones in the churchyard he was taken care by his sister who was 20 years older than himself she had married a blacksmith named joe gargery a kind good man while she unfortunately was a hard-stunned woman and treated her little brother and her amiable husband with great harshness They lived in a marshy part of the country about 20 miles from the sea. One cold raw day towards evening, when Pip was about 6 years old, he wandered into the churchyard and tried to make out what he could of the inscriptions on his family tombstones and the darkness coming on. He felt very lonely and frightened and began to cry. "Hold your noise!" cried a terrible voice. And a man started off from among the graves close to him. Keep still you little imp or I'll cut your throat. He was a dreadful looking man, dressed in a coarse grey cloth with a great iron on his leg. Wet, muddy and miserable, his teeth chattered in his head as he seized Pip by the chin. Oh, don't cut my throat, sir, cried Pip in terror. Tell us your name, said the man. Quick, Pip, sir. Show us where you live, said the man. Point out the place. Pip showed him the village, about a mile or more from the church. The man looked at him for a moment and then turned him upside down and emptied his pockets. He found nothing in them but a piece of bread, which he ate ravenously. Now looky here, said the man. Where's your mother? There, sir, said Pip. As this, the man started to run away, but stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, explained Pip, showing him the tombstone. Oh, and is that your father-in-law of your mother? Yes, sir, said Pip. Ha, muttered the man. Then who do you live with? My sister, sir. Miss Joe Gargery, wife of Joe Gargery. The blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh? Said the man and looked down his leg. 
when he sees the trembling little boy by both arms and glaring down at him and he said now look here the question being whether you're to be led to live you know what a file is yes sir and you know what whittles is yes sir you get me a file and you get me whittles bring them both to me all this time he was tilting poor pet backwards till he was dreadfully frightened and giddy Pip said that he would get the man the file and would get him what broken bits of food he could and would come to him at the pantry early in the morning. Pip ran home without stopping. Joe was sitting in the chimney corner and told him Mrs. Joe had been out to look for him and taken Tickler with her. Tickler was a cane. Pip was rather depressed by this piece of news. Mrs. Joe came in almost directly and after having given Pip a taste of Tickler, She sat down to prepare the tea and cutting a huge slice of bread and butter. She gave half of it to Joe and half to Pip. Pip managed after some time to slip his piece down the leg of his trousers, and Joe, thinking he had swallowed it, was dreadfully alarmed and begged him not to pour his food like that. Pip, old chap, you do yourself a mischief. It will stick somewhere. You can't have chewed it, Pip. You know, Pip, when me is always French. and I'd be the last to telephone at any time but such a such a most uncommon bold start poor pip passed a wretched night thinking of the dreadful promise he had made and as soon as it was beginning to get light outside he got up and crept downstairs and as quickly as he could he took some bread some cheese about half a jar of minced meat he tied up in a handkerchief with the previous night's slice of bread and butter a meat bone with very little on it and a pie which he found on an upper shelf then he got a file from among Joe's tools and ran for the marshes he found the man waiting for him half dead with cold and hunger and he ate the food in such a ravenous way that Pip in spite of his terror was quite pitiful over him and said i'm glad you enjoyed thank you me boy i do Pip said him trying to file the iron off his leg and then being afraid of stopping longer away from home he ran off Pip passed a wretched morning expecting every moment that the disappearance of the pie would be found out. But Mrs. Joe was too much taken up with preparing the dinner, for they were expecting visitors. At the end of the dinner, Pip was scared that he would be found out when his sister graciously called out to her guest, You must taste the most delightful and delicious present I have had. It's a pie, a savory pie. Pip could wait no longer and ran for the door and ran head foremost into a party of soldiers with their muskets. One of whom held out a pair of handcuffs to him, saying, "Here you are. Look sharp. Come on." But they had not come for him. They only wanted Joe to mend the handcuffs, for they were on the search for two convicts who had escaped and were hidden in the marshes. This turned the attention of Mrs. Joe from the disappearance of the pie. When the handcuffs were mended, the soldiers. went off accompanied by Joe and one of the visitors Joe took Pip and carried him on his back Pip whispered I hope Joe we shan't find him and Joe answered I'd give a shilling if that cut and run Pip but the soldiers soon caught them and one was Pip's miserable acquaintance and once when the man looked at Pip the child shook his head to try and let him know he had said nothing But the convict, without looking at anyone, told the sergeant he wanted to say something to prevent other people being under suspicion, and said he had taken some whittles from the blacksmiths. 
was some broken victuals that's what it was and a pie have you happened to miss such an article as a pie blacksmith inquired the sergeant my wife did at the very moment when you came in so said the convict looking at you you're the blacksmith are you i'm sorry to say i'll beat your pie god knows you're welcome to it said joe we don't know what you have done but we wouldn't have you starved to death for it poor miserable fellow creature what a spit then the boat came and the convicts were taken back to prison and joe carried pip home a few years later a mysterious friend sent money for pip to be educated and brought up as a gentleman it was only when pip was quite grown up that he discovered this mysterious friend was a wretched convict who had frightened him so dreadfully that cold dark christmas eve Dear children, open your English literary uh, reader to page number fifty-two. My financial career by Stephen Leacock. A man goes to a bank. Why do all the bank employees laugh when he leaves the bank? When I go into a bank, I get rattled. The clerks rattle me. The wickets rattle me. The sight of the money rattles me. Everything rattles me. The moment I cross the threshold of a bank and attempt to transact business there, I become an irresponsible idiot. I knew this beforehand, but my salary had been raised to fifty dollars a month, and I felt that the bank was the only place for it. So I shambled in and looked timidly round at the clerks. I had an idea that a person about to open an account must consult the manager. I went up to a wicket mark counter. The accountant was a tall, cool devil. The very sight of him rattled me. The voice was sepulchral. "Can I see the manager?" I said, and added solemnly, "Alone." I don't know why I said alone. Certainly, said the accountant, and fetched him. The manager was a grave, calm man. I held my fifty-six dollars clutched in a crumpled ball in my pocket. "Are you the manager?" I said. "God knows, I didn't doubt it." "Yes," he said. Can I see you? I asked. Alone. I didn't want to say alone again, but without it, the thing seemed self-evident. The manager looked at me in some alarm. He felt that I had an awful secret to reveal. Come in here, he said, and led the way to a private room. He turned the key in the lock. We are safe from interruption here, he said. Sit down. We both sat down and looked at each other. I found no voice to speak. You are one of the Pinkerton's men, I presume," he said. He had gathered from my mysterious manner that I was a detective. I knew what he was thinking, and it made me worse. No, no, not from Pinkerton's," I said, seeming to imply that I came from a rival agency. To tell the truth, I went on as if I had been prompted to lie about it. I am not a detective at all. I have come to open an account. I intend to keep all my money in this bank. The manager looked relieved, but still serious. He concluded now that I was the son of Baron Rothschild, or a young gaul, a large account, I suppose. He said, "Fairly large," I whispered. 
I propose to deposit $56 now and $50 a month regularly. The manager got up and opened the door. He called to the accountant, Mr. Montgomery, said unkindly loud. This gentleman is opening an account. He will deposit $56. Good morning. I rose. A big iron door stood open at the side of the room. Good morning, I said, and stepped into the safe. Come out, said the manager coldly and showed me the other way. I went up to the accountant's wicket and poked the ball of money at him with a quick convulsive movement as if I were doing a conjuring trick. My face was ghastly pale. Here I said deposited. The tone of the words seemed to me, let us do this painful thing while the fit is on us. He took the money and gave it to the another clerk. He made me write the sum on a slip and sign my name in a book. I no longer knew what I was doing. Is it deposited? I asked in a hollow vibrating voice. It is, said the accountant. Then I want to draw a check. My idea was to draw out $6 of it for present use. Someone gave me a checkbook through a wicket and someone else began telling me how to write it out. The people in the bank had the impression that I was an invalid millionaire. I wrote something on the check and thrust it in at the club he looked at it what are you drawing it all out again he asked in surprise then i realized that i had written 56 instead of 6 i was too far gone to reason now i had a feeling that it was impossible to explain the thing all the clerks had stopped writing to look at me reckless with mystery i made a plunge yes the whole thing you withdraw your money from the bank every cent of it are you not going to deposit any more said the clerk astonished never an idiot hope struck me that they might think something had insulted me while i was writing the check and that i had changed my mind i made a wretched attempt to look like a man with a fearfully quick temper the clerk prepared to pay the money how will you have it he said what how will you have it Oh, I caught his meaning and answered without even trying to think in 50s. He gave me a 56 dollar bill and the 6 he asked Riley in 6s I said. He gave it to me and I rushed out. As the big door swung behind me, I caught the echo of a roar of laughter that went up to the ceiling of the bank. Since then I back no more. I keep money in cash in my trousers trouser pocket. and my savings in silver dollars in a sock dear children open your english literary reader to page number 67 now you are going to read with me please guide your finger on the text as i read a bitterly cold night by premchand The setting of the story is the 1920s. Halku, a tenant farmer, is out in the open keeping a watch on his crop. He doesn't even have a blanket. How does he survive the night? Halku came in and said to his wife, "The landlord's come. Get the money set aside. I'll give it to him, and somehow or the other, we'll get along without it." Muni had been sweeping. She turned round and said, "But there are only three rupees. If you give them to him." Where is the blanket going to come from? 
How are you going to get through these January nights in the fields? Tell him we'll pay him after the harvest, not right now. For a moment, Hulku stood hesitating. Without a blanket, he couldn't possibly sleep in the fields at night. But the landlord wouldn't be put off. He would threaten and insult him. So what did it matter if he died in the cold weather? Trying to coax his wife, Hulku said. Come on, give it to me. I'll figure out some other plan. Her eyes angry, Muni said. You've already tried some other plan. Just tell me what other plan you have. Is somebody going to give you a blanket? We are already heavily in debt and we can't pay it off. What I say is give up this tenant farming. The work's killing you. Whatever you harvest goes to pay the arrears. So why not give it up? Were we born just to keep paying off debts? Earn some money for your own belly. Give up this kind of farming. I won't give you the money. I won't. Sadly, Halku said, and I'll have to put up with this abuse. Losing her temper, Muni said, why should he abuse you? Is this his kingdom? But as she said it, she saw frowning. The bitter truth in Halku's word completely dampened her spirit. She went to the niche in the wall, took out the money and handed it over to Halku. Give up this kind of farming, she insisted. If you work as a hired laborer, we'll at least get enough food to eat. No one will be yelling insults at you. You farm someone else's land. Whatever you earn, you give it back to him and get inserted in the bargain. Halku took the money. It seemed as if he was tearing his heart out and giving it away. They had saved the money, pies by pies, for his blanket. Today he was going to throw it away. With every step, his head sank lower under the burden of his poverty. It was a dark January night. In the sky, even the stars seemed to be shivering. At the edge of his field, underneath the shelter of cane leaves, Halku lay on a bamboo cot, wrapped up in his old shawl, shivering. Underneath the cot, his friend, Chabra the dog, was whimpering with his muscle pressed into his belly. Neither one of them was able to sleep. Halku curled up, drawing his knees close against his chin, and said, Hold Jabra, didn't I tell you in the house that you could lie in the paddy straw? So why did you come out here? Now you'll have to pay the cold. There's nothing I can do. Jibra wagged his tail without getting up, protracted his whimpering into a long yawn and was silent. Perhaps in this canine wisdom, he guessed that his whimpering was keeping his master awake. Halku reached out his hand and patted Jabra's cold back. From tomorrow, stop coming with me or the cold will get you. This west wind comes from nobody knows where, bringing the icy cold with it. Someone will get through the night. This is the reward you get for farming, while some lucky fellows are sleeping. In their houses, under good thick quilts, fate is strange. While we do the hard work, somebody else reaps the rewards. Chabra looked at him, eyes overflowing with love. You have to put up with just one more cold night. Tomorrow I'll spread some straw. While you lie down on that, you won't feel the cold so much. Chabra put his paws on Halku's knees and brought his muzzle close. Halku felt his warm breath. Halku lay down and made up his mind to sleep, but he couldn't. He turned from side to side. The cold continued to torment him. When he could no longer bear it, he gently picked Chabra up and patting his head, got him to fall asleep in his lap. The dog's body gave off a kind of sting, but Halku, hugging him tight, experienced a happiness 
he hadn't felt for months. Halku embraced him affectionately as he would a brother or a friend. He didn't resent a stank. This singular friendship warmed his whole being. Suddenly Jabra picked up the noise of some animal. The special intimacy with his master had produced a new alertness in him that ignored the bite of the cold wind. Springing up, he ran out of the shelter and began to bark. Halku whistled and called him several times, but Jabra did not listen to him. He went on barking. He would come back for a moment and dash off again. The sense of duty had taken possession of him. Another hour passed. The cold increased. Halku sat up and bringing both knees tight against his chest, hid his face between them, but the cold was just as biting. It seemed as though all his blood had frozen, that ice rather than blood filled his veins. He leaned back to look at the skies. How much of the night was still left? Night was not even three hours gone. Only a stone's throw from Halku's field, there was a mango grove. The leaves had begun to fall and they were lying in a heap. Halku thought, if I go and make a pile of leaves, I can light a fire and keep myself warm. If anybody sees me gathering the leaves in the dead of the night, they'll think it's a coast. He ripped up some stalks from a nearby field, made a broom out of them, and picking up a lighted cow dung cake, went towards the grove. Chapra watched him coming and ran to him, wagging his tail. Halku said, I couldn't stand it anymore, Chapra. Come along, let's go into the orchard and gather leaves to warm ourselves. When we are toasted, we'll come back and sleep. The night's still far from over. Chapra parked his agreement and trotted on towards the orchard. Under the tree, it was a pitch dark, and in the darkness, the bitter wind blew. Buffeting the leaves and drops of dew dripped from the branches. Jabra had found a bone lying somewhere and he was chewing on it. Halku began to gather the leaves. In a little while, he had a great heat. His hands were frozen, his bare feet numb. He had piled up a regular mountain of the dry leaves and by making a fire, he had dried away the cold. In a little while, the fire was burning merrily. The flames leapt upwards licking at the overhanging branches. In the flickering light, the immense trees of the grove looked as though they were carrying the vast darkness on their heads. Halku sat before the fire and let it warm him. After a while, he took off his shawl and tucked it behind him. Then he spread out both feet as though challenging the cold to do its worst. Victorious over the immense power of the winter, he could not repress his pride in his triumph. He said to Jabra, Well, Jabra, you're not cold now, are you? You should have thought of this plan before. Jabra wagged his tail. The leaves were all burned up. Darkness covered the orchard again. Under the ashes, a few embers smoldered, and when a gust of wind blew over them, they stirred up briefly and then flickered out again. Halku wrapped himself up in his shawl again and sat by the warm ashes, humming a tune. The fire had warmed him through and he felt drowsy. Jabra gave a loud bark and ran towards the field. Halku realized that this meant a pack of wild animals had probably broken into the field. They might be wild cattle. He distinctly heard the noise of them moving around. Then it seemed to him they were grazing. 
he could hear the sound of nibbling. He thought, no, with Jabra around, no animal can get into the field. He would rip it to shreds. I must have been mistaken. Nah, there is no sound at all. I must have been mistaken. He shouted, Jabra, Jabra. Jabra went on barking and did not come to him. Again, there was the sound of munching and crunching in the field. He could not have been mistaken this time. It really hurt to think about getting out from where he was. It was so comfortable there that it seemed intolerable to go to the field in this cold and chase animals. He didn't stare. He only shouted at the top of his lungs, Hello, hello, hello. Jabra started barking again. There were animals eating his feet just when the crop was ready. What a fine crop it was. And these cursed animals were destroying it. With a firm resolve, he got up and took a few steps. But suddenly, a blast of icy wind pierced him like the sting of a scorpion. He went back, set by the extinguished fire, stood up the ashes to warm his chilled body. Chabra was barking his lungs up. The wild cattle were devastating his field, and Halku went on, sitting peacefully near the warm ashes. His drowsiness held him motionless. Wrapped in a shawl, he fell asleep on the warm ground near the ashes. When he woke up in the morning, the sun was high, and Muni was saying, Do you think you're going to sleep all day? You came out here, lit a fire, while the whole field was being flattened. Halku got up and said, then you've just come from the field. Yes, it's all ruined. And you could sleep like that? Halku saw an excuse. I nearly died and just managed to get through the night and you worry about your crop. I had such a pain in my belly that I can't describe it. Then the two of them walked to the edge of their land. He looked. The whole field had been trampled and Chabra was stretched out as though he were dead. They continued to stare at the ruined field. Muni's face was shadowed with grief, but Halku was content. Muni said, And you'll have to hire yourself out to earn some money to pay off the rent and taxes. With a contented smile, Halku said, But I won't have to sleep nights out here in the cold. आज आपण माऊली या पाठ्यपुस्तकातील पान क्रमांक बेचाळीसवरील पाठ क्रमांक नऊ बदलते विचार या पाठाचे वाचन करणार आहोत वाचत असताना प्रत्येक शब्दावर बोट ठेवून वाचावे चला तर मग सुरुवात करूया एक राजा होता त्याला सुंदर इमारती बनविण्याची आवड होती त्याच्या राज्यात चारही बाजूला मोठ्या इमारती होत्या राजाने कुशल कारागिरांना आपल्या राज्यात बोलावले होते जेणेकरून सुंदर इमारतींची निर्मिती करणे शक्य होईल या शिल्पकार होता जो आता वृद्ध झाला होता त्यांनी वर्षानुवर्षे आपल्या कलेचा वापर करून उत्कृष्ट इमारती बांधल्या होत्या राजा त्यांना शिल्पकार श्रेष्ठ म्हणून बोलावत असे एके दिवशी शिल्पकार श्रेष्ठांनी राजाला सांगितले महाराज 
मी आयुष्यभर राज्याची सेवा केली पण आता मी वृद्ध झालो आहे तरी मला राज्यसेवेतून मुक्त करावं राजाने त्यांना सांगितलं शिल्पकार श्रेष्ठ तुम्हाला सेवानिवृत्त होण्याचा पूर्ण अधिकार आहे पण त्यापूर्वी माझी एक इच्छा आहे माझ्यासाठी तुम्ही अशी इमारत बनवा जी सर्व इमारतींमध्ये श्रेष्ठ असेल ते वृद्ध शिल्पकार अशी इमारत बनविण्यात व्यग्र झाले राजाला ज्या उत्कृष्टतेची आणि श्रेष्ठतेची अपेक्षा होती ती त्यांनी लक्षात न घेता कशीतरी इमारत पूर्ण केली आणि पुन्हा एके दिवशी राजाला विनंती केली महाराज मी तुमच्या इच्छेप्रमाणे नवी इमारत बनविली आहे आता मला राज्याच्या सेवेतून मुक्त करावं राजा म्हणाला आजपासून तुम्ही राज्याच्या सेवेतून मुक्त झालात मी तुमचा विशेष सत्कार करू इच्छितो त्यासाठीच मी तुमच्याकडून ही खास इमारत बनवून घेतली जेणेकरून ती पुरस्कार म्हणून मी तुम्हाला देऊ शकेन शिल्पकाराला हे ऐकून आनंद झाला पण तेव्हाच त्याला जाणवले की आपण हे काम मन लावून केले नाही आणि या इमारतीत अनेक उणिवा आहेत आपली सेवा निवृत्ती नंतरची अस्वस्थताही अशी असू शकते म्हणूनच आपल्यातील श्रेष्ठतेकडे दुर्लक्ष न करता आपले काम मनापासून आणि सर्वोत्कृष्ट करण्यावर भर द्या कारण आपले काम हाच आपल्यासाठी सर्वात मोठा पुरस्कार असतो कामाबद्दलची चीड किंवा अनुत्साह यामुळे आपण आपला पुरस्कार गमावू शकतो शब्बाश आता तुम्ही याच पाठाचे पुन्हा एकदा मनातल्या मनात वाचन करा आज आपण माऊली या पाठ्यपुस्तकातील पान क्रमांक सत्तेचाळीस वरील पाठ क्रमांक दहा आई या कवितेचे वाचन करणार आहोत वाचत असताना प्रत्येक शब्दावर बोट ठेवून वाचावे चला तर मग सुरुवात करूया आई म्हणोनी कोणी आईस हाक मारी ती हाक येई कानी मज होय शोककारी नो हेच हाक माते मारी कुणी कुठारी आई कुणा म्हणो मी आई घरी न दारी ही न्यून सुखाची चित्ता सदा विदारी स्वामी तिन्ही जगाचा आई विना भिकारी चारा मुखी पिलांच्या चिमणी हळूच देई गोठ्यात वासरांना ह्या चाटतात गाई वात्सल्य हे पशूंचे मी रोज रोज पाही पाहून अंतरात्मा व्याकुळ मात्र होई वात्सल्य माऊलीचे आम्हा जगात नाही दुर्भाग्य याविना का आम्हास नाही आई येशील तू घराला परतून केध वागे दवडू नको घडीला 
ये ये निघून वेगे हे गुंतले जीवीचे पायी तुझाच धागे कर्तव्य माऊलीचे करण्यास येई वेगे रुसणार मीन आता जरी बोलशील रागे ये रागवावयाही परी येई येई वेगे शाबाश खूप छान आता आपण या कवितेचे मनातल्या मनात वाचन करा आज आपण माऊली या पाठ्यपुस्तकातील पान क्रमांक वीस वरील पाठ क्रमांक चार मायेचा प्रभाव या पाठाचे वाचन करणार आहोत वाचत असताना प्रत्येक शब्दावर बोट ठेवून वाचावे चला तर मग सुरुवात करूया देवदत्त हा गौतम बुद्धांचा शिष्य होता आणि तो त्यांचा चुलत भाऊ देखील होता त्यामुळे सगळ्या साधूंचा भविष्यातील प्रमुख म्हणून तो स्वतःकडे पाहत असे पण गौतम बुद्ध मात्र चुलत भाऊ म्हणून त्याला कुठलीही वेगळी वागणूक देत नसत इतरांप्रमाणेच त्याच्याशी वागत असत याच गोष्टीचे देवदत्तला नेहमी आश्चर्य वाटायचे आपल्या चुलत भावाने आपल्याला अधिक आपुलकीची आणि जवळीकीची वागणूक द्यावी असे त्याला वाटत असे त्यामुळे देवदत्तच्या मनात राग धुमसत होता त्यातून मग गौतम बुद्धांना धडा शिकवण्याचा कट त्याने रचला एका गावात एक हत्तीण होती नळगिरी नावाने तिला सगळे हाक मारत असत गौतम बुद्ध त्या गावात आलेले असताना देवदत्ताने त्या हत्तिणीला मद्य पाजले आणि गौतम बुद्धांचे आगमन होत असलेल्या मार्गावर त्या हत्तिणीला सोडून दिले जेव्हा समोरून लोकांचा जथ्था येत असल्याचे दिसल्यावर हत्तिण त्यांच्यावर हल्ला करण्याच्या इराद्याने त्यांच्या दिशेने चित्कारत धावू लागले ते पाहताच सगळे लोक सैरावैरा धावू लागले सगळी गर्दी पांगली गौतम बुद्ध मात्र शांतपणे पावले टाकत पुढे चालत होते सगळे ओरडत होते पिसाळलेला हत्ती आहे बाजूला भा त्या नळगिरी हत्तीणीची नजर गौतम बुद्धांवर पडली तेव्हा ती संतापाने त्यांच्या दिशेने धावू लागली ती हत्तीण त्यांच्यापासून वीस पंचवीस पावलांवर असतानाच गौतम बुद्धांनी तिला स्पर्श करण्यासाठी हात उंचावला तेव्हा तिला प्रेम आणि ममत्वाची जाणीव झाली ती त्यांच्या समोर येऊन पुढचे दोन्ही पाय दुमडून बसली जणू काही ती त्यांच्यासमोर नतमस्तक झाली आहे असे वाटत होते अगदी वाईट शत्रूला देखील प्रेम आणि ममत्वाच्या भावनेने जिंकता येते 
आणि त्याच्या मनात शत्रुत्वाऐवजी आदर निर्माण करता येतो हे गौतम बुद्धांनी दाखवून दिले होते खूप छान आता आपण याच पाठाचे मनातल्या मनात वाचन करा नमस्ते बच्चो आज हम वसंत भागदो इस पाठ्यपुस्तक में से पृष्ठ क्रमांक तिरासी पर पाठ क्रमांक ग्यारह रहीम के दोहे इस कविता का वाचन करने वाले हैं आप प्रत्येक शब्द पर अपनी उंगली रखकर मेरे साथ इस कविता का वाचन कीजिए चलो तो शुरू करते हैं रहीम के दोहे कही रहीम संपत्ति सगे बनत बहुत बहुरीत विपत्ति कसौटी जे कसे ती सांचे मीत जाल परे जल जात बही तजी मीनन को मोह रहीमन मछरी नीर को तऊन छाड़ती छोह तरुवर फल नहीं खात है सरोवर पियत न पान कही रहीम परकाज हित संपत्ति संचही सुजात थोते बादर क्वार के जो रहीम घरात धनी पुरुष निर्धन भय करे पाछली बात धरती की सी रीत है सीत घाम मेह जैसी परे सो सही रहे क्यों रहीम यह देह नमस्ते बच्चों आज हम वसंत भाग दो इस पाठ्यपुस्तक में से पृष्ठ क्रमांक छियासी पाठ क्रमांक बारह कंचा इस पाठ का वाचन करने वाले हैं आप प्रत्येक शब्द पर अपनी उंगली रखकर मेरे साथ इस पाठ का वाचन कीजिए चलो तो शुरू करते हैं कंचा वह नीम के पेड़ों की घनी छाव से होता हुआ सियार की कहानी का मजा लेता आ रहा था हिलते डुलते उसका बस्ता दोनों तरफ झूमता खनकता था स्लेट कभी छोटी शीशी से टकरा दी तो कभी पेंसिल से यो वे सब उस बस्ते के अंदर टकरा रहे थे मगर वह न कुछ सुन रहा था न कुछ देख रहा था उसका पूरा ध्यान कहानी पर केंद्रित था कैसी मजेदार कहानी कौवे और सियार की सियार कौवे से बोला प्यारे कौवे एक गाना गाओ तुम्हारा गाना सुनने के लिए तरस रहा हूं कौवे ने गाने के लिए मुंह खोला तो रोटी का टुकड़ा जमीन पर गिर पड़ा सियार उसे उठाकर 
नौ दो ग्यारह टू गया वह जोर से हंसा बुद्धू कौआ वह चलते चलते दुकान के सामने पहुंचा वहां अलमारी में कांच के बड़े बड़े जार कतार में रखे थे उनमें चॉकलेट पिपरमेंट और बिस्कुट थे उसकी नजर उनमें से किसी पर नहीं पड़ी क्यों देखे उसके पिताजी उसे ये चीजें बराबर ला देते हैं फिर भी एक नए जार ने उसका ध्यान आकृष्ट किया वह कंघे से लटकते बस्ते का फीता उस तरफ हटाकर उस जार के सामने खड़ा टुकर टुकर टाकता रहा नया नया लाकर रखा गया है उसने पहले उसने वह चीज यहां नहीं देखी है पूरी जार में कंचे हैं, हरी लकीर वाले बढ़िया सफेद गोल कंचे बड़े आवरी जैसे कितने खूबसूरत है अब तक ये कहाँ थे शायद दुकान के अंदर अब दुकानदार ने दिखाने के लिए बाहर रखा होगा उसके देखते देखते जार बड़ा होने लगा वह आसमान सा बड़ा हो गया तो वह भी उसके भीतर आ गया वहां और कोई लड़का तो नहीं था फिर भी उसे वही पसंद था छोटी बहन के हमेशा के लिए चले जाने के बाद वह अकेले ही खेलता था वह कंचे चारों तरफ बिखेरता मजे में खेलता रहा तभी एक आवाज आई लड़के तू उस जार को नीचे गिरा देगा वह चौक उठा जार अब छोटा बनता जा रहा था छोटे जार में हरी लकीर वाले सफेद गोल कंचे छोटे आंवले जैसे सिर्फ दो जने वहां है वह और बूढ़ा दुकानदार दुकानदार के चेहरे पर कुछ चिड़चिड़ाहट थी मैंने कहा ना जो चाहते हो वह मैं निकाल कर दू वह उदास हो अलग खड़ा रहा क्या कंचा चाहिए दुकानदार ने जार का ढक्कन खोलना शुरू किया उसने निषेध में सिर हिलाया तो फिर सवाल खूब रहा क्या उसे कंचा चाहिए क्या चाहिए उसे खूट मालूम नहीं है जो भी हो उसने कंचे को छूकर देखा जार को छूने पर कंचे का स्पर्श करने का एहसास हुआ अगर वह चाहता तो कंचा ले सकता था लिया होता तो स्कूल की घंटी सुनकर वह बाजता थामे हुए दौड़ पड़ा देर से पहुंचने वाले लड़कों को पीछे बैठना पड़ता है उस दिन वही सब के बाद पहुंचा था इसलिए वह चुपचाप पीछे की बेंच पर बैठ गया अब अपनी अपनी जगह पर है रामन अगली बेंच पर है वह रोज समय पर आता है तीसरी बेंच के आखिर में मल्लिका के बाद अम्मू बैठी है जॉर्ज दिखाई नहीं पड़ता लड़कों के बीच जॉर्ज ही सबसे अच्छा कंचे का खिलाड़ी है कितना भी बड़ा लड़का उसके साथ खेले जॉर्ज से मात खाएगा हारने पर यू ही विदा नहीं हो सकता हारे हुए को अपनी बंद मुट्ठी जमीन पर रखनी होगी तब जॉर्ज कंचा चलाकर बंद मुट्ठी के 
जोड़ों की हड्डी तोड़ेगा जॉर्ज को क्यों नहीं आया अरे हाँ जॉर्ज को बुखार है ना उसने उसे रामन ने यह सूचना दी थी उससे मल्लिका को सब बताया था जॉर्ज का घर रामन के घर के रास्ते में पड़ता है अपू कक्षा की तरफ ध्यान नहीं दे रहा है मास्टर जी उसने हड़बड़ी में पुस्तक खोलकर सामने रख ली रेलगाड़ी का सबक था रेलगाड़ी रेलगाड़ी पृष्ठ सैतीस घर पर उसने यह पाठ पढ़ लिया है मास्टर जी बीच बीच में बेंत से मेच ठोकते हुए ऊंची आवाज में कह रहे थे बच्चों तुम में से कई ने रेलगाड़ी देखी होगी उसे भाप की गाड़ी भी कहते हैं क्योंकि उसका यंत्र भाप की शक्ति से ही चलता है भाप का मतलब पानी से निकलती भाप से है तुम लोगों के घरों में चूल्हे भी हैं अपू ने भी सोचा रेलगाड़ी उसने रेलगाड़ी देखी है छुप छुप यही रेलगाड़ी है वह भाप की भी गाड़ी का मतलब मास्टर जी की आवाज अब कम ऊंची थी वे रेलगाड़ी के हर एक हिस्से के बारे में समझा रहे थे पानी रखने के लिए खास जगह है इसे अंग्रेजी में बॉयलर कहते हैं यह लोहे का बड़ा पीपा है लोहे का एक बड़ा कांच का जाल उसमें हरी लकीर वाले सफेद गोल कंचे बड़े आंवले जैसे जॉर्ज जब अच्छा होकर आ जाएगा तब उससे कहेगा उस समय जॉर्ज कितना खुश होगा सिर्फ वे दोनों खेलेंगे और किसी को साथ खेलने नहीं देंगे उसके चेहरे पर शौक का टुकड़ा आ गिरा अनुभव के कारण वह उठकर खड़ा हो गया मास्टर जी गुस्से में है अरे तू इधर क्या कर रहा है उसका दम घूट रहा था बोल वह खामोश खड़ा रहा क्या नहीं बोलेगा वे अपू के पास पहुंचे सारी कक्षा सांस रोके हुए उसी तरफ देख रही है उसकी घबराहट बढ़ गई मैं अभी किसके बारे में बता रहा था कर्मठ मास्टर जी उस लड़के का चेहरा देखकर समझ गए कि उसके मन में और कुछ है शायद उसने पाठ पर ध्यान दिया भी हो अगर दिया है तो उसका जवाब उसके मन से बाहर ले आना है इसी में उनकी सफलता है हाँ हाँ बता डरना मत मास्टर जी ने देखा अपू की जवान पर जवाब था हाँ हाँ वह कांपते हुए बोला कंचा कंचा वे सकपका गए कक्षा में भूचाल आ गया स्टैंड अप मास्टर साहब की आंखों में चिंगारियां सुलग रही थी अपू रोता हुआ बेंच पर चढ़ा पड़ोसी कक्षा के टीचर ने दरवाजे से झाँक कर देखा फिर सम्मिलित हासी रोकने की पूरी कोशिश करने पर भी वह अपना दुख रोक नहीं सका सुबकता रहा रोते रोते उसका दुख बढ़ता ही गया सब उसकी तरफ देख देखकर उसकी हंसी उड़ा रहे हैं रामन मल्लिका सब बेंच पर खड़े खड़े उसने सोचा दिखा दूंगा सबको जॉर्ज को आने आने दो जॉर्ज जब आए 
जॉर्ज के आने पर वह कंचे खरीदेगा इनमें से किसी को वह खेलने नहीं बुलाएगा कंचे को देख ये ललचाएंगे इतना खूबसूरत कंचा है हरी लकीर वाले सफेद गोल कंचे बड़े आंवले जैसे तब शक हुआ कंचा मिले कैसे क्या मांगने पर दुकानदार देगा जॉर्ज को साथ लेकर पूछे तो नहीं दे तो किसी को शक हो तो पूछ लो मास्टर जी ने उस घंटे का सबक समाप्त किया क्या किसी को कोई शक नहीं अपू की शंका अभी दूर नहीं हुई थी वह सोच रहा था क्या जॉर्ज को साथ ले चलने पर दुकानदार कंचा नहीं देगा अगर खरीदना ही पड़े तो कितने पैसे ले लेंगे रामन ने मास्टर जी से सवाल किया और उसे सवाल का जवाब मिला अमीन ने शंका का समाधान करा कई छात्रों ने यह दोहराया अपू क्या सोच रहे हो मास्टर जी ने पूछा पूछ लो ना शंका क्या है शंका जरूर है क्या जॉर्ज को साथ ले चलने पर दुकानदार कंचे देगा नहीं तो कितने पैसे लगेंगे क्या पांच पैसे में मिलेगा दस पैसे में क्या सोच रहे हो पैसे क्या कितने पैसे चाहिए किसके लिए वह कुछ नहीं बोला हरी लकीर वाले सफेद गोल कंचे उसके सामने से फिसलते गए मास्टर जी ने पूछा क्या रेलगाड़ी के लिए उसने सिर हिलाया बेवकूफ रेलगाड़ी को पैसे से खरीद नहीं सकते अगर मिले तो उसे लेकर क्या करेगा वह खेलेगा जॉर्ज के साथ खेलेगा रेलगाड़ी नहीं कंचा चपरा से एक नोटिस लाया मास्टर जी ने कहा जो फीस लाए हैं वे ऑफिस जाकर जमा कर दें बहुत से छात्र गए राजन ने जाते जाते अपू के पैरों में चिकोटी काट ली उसने पैर खींच लिया उसे याद आया उसे भी फीस जमा करनी है पिताजी ने उसे डेढ़ रुपया उसके लिए दिया है उसने अपनी जेब टटोल कर देखा एक रुपये का नोट और पचास पैसे का सिक्का वह बेंच से उतरा किधर मास्टर जी ने पूछा उसने कंठ से खुशी के बुलबुले उठे फीस देनी है फीस मत देना मास्टर जी ने कहा वह झिझकता रहा ऑन दी बेंच वह बेंच पर चढ़कर रोने लगा क्या भविष्य में भी कक्षा में ध्यान से पढ़ेगा ध्यान दूंगा वह दफ्तर गया दफ्तर में बड़ी भीड़ थी बच्चों एक एक करके आओ क्लर्क बाबू बता रहे हैं पहले मैं आया हूँ मैं ही आया हूँ मेरे बाकी पैसे इस शोरगुल में अपू दूर खड़ा रहा रामन ने फीस जमा की मल्लिका ने जमा की अब थोड़े से लड़के ही बचे हैं वह सोच रहा था जॉर्ज को साथ लेकर चलूँ तो देगा ना शायद दे नहीं तो कितने पैसे लगेंगे पाँच पैसे दस पैसे हरी लकीर लकीरों वाले गोल सफेद कंचे घंटी बजने पर फीस जमा किए हुए सभी बच्चे उधर से चले वह भी चला मानो नींद से जाकर चल रहा हो 
क्या सब ठीक जमा कर चुके सच्चा छोड़ने के पहले मास्टर जी ने पूछा वह नहीं उठा शाम को थोड़ी देर इधर उधर टहलता रहा लड़के गिल्ली मिट्टी में छोटे गड्ढे खोदकर कंचे खेल रहे थे वह उनके पास नहीं गया फाटक के खींच खींच सिंखचे थामे उसने सड़क की तरफ देखा वहां उस मोड़ पर दुकान है दुकान में अलमारी बाहर खड़े खड़े छू सकेगा अलमारी में शीशे के जार है उनमें एक जार में पूरा हुआ बस्ता कंधे पर लटकाए वह चलने लगा दुकान नजदीक आ रही है उसकी चाल की तेजी बढ़ी वह अलमारी के सामने खड़ा हो गया दुकानदार हंसा उसे मालूम हुआ कि दुकानदार उस उसके इंतजार में है वह भी हंसा कंचा चाहिए है ना उसने सिर हिलाया दुकानदार जार का ढक्कन जब खोलने लगा तब अपू ने पूछा अच्छे कंचे है ना बढ़िया फर्स्ट क्लास कंचे तुम्हें कितने कंचे चाहिए कितने कंचे चाहिए कितने चाहिए कितने उसने जेब में हाथ डाला एक रुपया और पचास पैसे उसने वह निकाल कर दिखाया दुकानदार चौका इतने सारे पैसों के सबके पहले कभी किसी लड़के ने इतनी बड़ी रकम से कंचे नहीं खरीदे थे इतने कंचों की जरूरत क्या है वह मैं नहीं बताऊंगा दुकानदार समझ गया वह भी किसी जमाने में बच्चा रहा था उसके साथी मिलकर खरीद रहे होंगे यही उसने उसके लिए खरीदने आया होगा वह कंचे खरीदने की बात जॉर्ज के सिवा और किसी को बताना नहीं चाहता था दुकानदार ने पूछा क्या तुम्हें कंचा खेलना आता है वह नहीं जानता था तो फिर कैसे कैसे सवाल पूछ रहा है उसका धीरज जवाब दे रहा था उसने हाथ फैलाया दे दो दुकानदार हंस पड़ा वह भी हंस पड़ा कागज की पोटली छाती से चिपकाए वह नीम के पेड़ों की छाव में चलने लगा कंचे अब उसकी हथेली में है जब चाय बाहर निकाल ले उसने पोटली खिलाकर देखा वह हंस रहा था उसका जी चाहता था काश पूरा जार उसे मिल जाता जार मिलता तो उसके छूने से ही कंचे को छूने का एहसास होता एकाएक उसे शक हुआ क्या सब कंचों में लकीर होगी उसने पोटली खोलकर देखने का निश्चय किया बस्ता नीचे रखकर वह धीरे से पोटली खोलने लगा पोटली खोली और सारे कंचे बिखर गए वे सड़क के बीचों बीच पहुंच रहे हैं क्षणभर सबकाने के बाद वह उन्हें चुनने लगा हथेली भर गई वह चुने हुए कंचे कहाँ रखे स्लेट और किताबें बस्ते से बाहर रखने के बाद कंचे बस्ते में डालने लगा एक दो तीन चार एक कार सड़क पर ब्रेक लगा रही थी वह उस वक्त भी कंचे चुनने में मग्न था ड्राइवर को इतना गुस्सा आया कि उस लड़के को कच्चा खा जाने की इच्छा हुई उसने बाहर झाँक कर देखा वह लड़का क्या कर रहा है हॉर्न की आवाज सुन कंचे चुनते अपू ने बीच में सिर उठाकर देखा सामने एक मोटर है और उसके भीतर ड्राइवर उसने सोचा क्या 
कंचे उसे भी अच्छे लग रहे हैं शायद वह भी मजा ले रहा है एक कंचा उठाकर उसे दिखाया और हंसा बहुत अच्छा है ना ड्राइवर का गुस्सा हवा हो गया वह हंस पड़ा बस्ता कंधे पर लटकाए स्लेट किताब शीशी पेंसिल सब छाती से चिपकाए वह घर आया उसकी माँ शाम की चाय तैयार कर उसकी राह देख रही थी बरामदे में बेंच पर स्लेट व किताबें फेंक कर वह दौड़ कर माँ के गले लग गया उसके लौटने में देर होते देख माँ घबराई हुई थी उसने बस्ता जोर से हिलाकर दिखाया अरे यह क्या है माँ ने पूछा मैं नहीं बताऊंगा वह बोला मुझसे नहीं कहेगा कहूंगा माँ आंखें बंद कर लो माँ ने आंखें बंद कर ली उसने गिना वन टू थ्री माँ ने आंखें खोलकर देखा बस्ते में कंचे ही कंचे थे वह कुछ और हैरान हुए इतने सारे कंचे कहाँ से लाया खरीदे हैं कैसे पिताजी की तस्वीर की ओर इशारा करते हुए उसने कहा दोपहर को दिए थे ना माँ ने दांतों तले उंगली दबाए फीस के पैसे इतने सारे कंचे काहे को लाए आखिर खेलोगे किसके साथ उस घर में सिर्फ वही है उसके बाद एक मुन्नी हुई थी उसकी छोटी बहन मगर माँ की पलके भीग गई उसकी माँ रो रही है अब तो नहीं जान सका कि माँ क्यों रो रही है क्या कंचा खरीदने से ऐसा तो नहीं हो सकता तो फिर उसकी आंखों के सामने बूढ़ा दुकानदार और कार का ड्राइवर खड़े खड़े हंस रहे थे वे सब पसंद करते हैं सिर्फ माँ को कंचे क्यों पसंद नहीं आए शायद कंचे अच्छे नहीं हैं बस्ते से आवरे जैसे कंचे निकालते हुए उसने कहा बुरे कंचे हैं है ना नहीं अच्छे हैं देखने में बहुत अच्छे लगते है ना बहुत अच्छे लगते हैं वह हंस पड़ा उसकी माँ भी हंस पड़ी आंसू से गिले माँ के गाल पर उसने अपना गाल सटा दिया अब उसके दिल में खुशी की झलक रही थी नमस्ते बच्चों आज हम वसंत भाग दो इस पाठ्यपुस्तक में से पृष्ठ क्रमांक निन्यानवे पाठ क्रमांक तेरह एक तीन का इस कविता का वाचन करने वाले हैं इस कविता के कवि है अयोध्या सिंह उपाध्याय अर्थात हरिओंत आप प्रत्येक शब्द पर अपनी उंगली रखकर मेरे साथ इस कविता का वाचन कीजिए चलो तो शुरू करते हैं एक दिन का मैं घमंडों में भरा ऐठा हुआ एक दिन जब था मुंडेरे पर खड़ा आ अचानक दूर से उड़ता हुआ एक दिन का आंख में मेरी पड़ा मैं झिझक उठा हुआ बेचैन सा लाल होकर आंख भी दुखने लगी मूठ देने लोग कपड़े की लगे ऐठ बेचारी 
दबे पाओ भगी जब किसी ढब से निकल तिनका गया तब समझने यो मुझे ताने दिए ऐठता तू किस लिए इतना रहा एक तिनका है बहुत तेरे लिए नमस्ते बच्चों आज हम पसंत भाग दो इस पाठ्य पुस्तक में से पृष्ठ क्रमांक एक सौ दो पाठ क्रमांक चौदह खानपान की बदलती तस्वीर इस पाठ का वाचन करने वाले हैं आप प्रत्येक शब्द पर अपनी उंगली रखकर मेरे साथ इस पाठ का वाचन कीजिए चलो तो शुरू करते हैं खानपान की बदलती तस्वीर पिछले दस पंद्रह वर्षों में हमारी खानपान की संस्कृति में एक बड़ा बदलाव आया है इडली डोसा बड़ा सांभर रसम अब केवल दक्षिण भारत तक सीमित नहीं है ये उत्तर भारत के भी हर शहर में उपलब्ध है और अब तो उत्तर भारत की ढाबा संस्कृति लगभग पूरे देश में फैल चुकी है अब आप कहीं भी हो उत्तर भारतीय रोटी दाल साग आपको मिल ही जाएंगे फास्ट फूड का चलन भी बड़े शहरों में खूब बढ़ा है इस फास्ट फूड में बर्गर नूडल्स जैसी कई चीजें शामिल है एक जमाने में कुछ ही लोगों तक सीमित चाइनीज नूडल्स अब संभवतः किसी के लिए अजनबी नहीं है टू मिनट्स नूडल्स के पैकेट बन रूप से तो कम से कम बच्चे बूढ़े सभी परिचित हो चुके हैं इसी तरह नमकीन के कई स्थानीय प्रकार अभी तक भले मौजूद हो लेकिन आलू चिप्स के कई विज्ञापित रूप तेजी से घर घर में अपनी जगह बनाते जा रहे हैं गुजराती ढोकला गाठिया भी अब देश के कई हिस्सों में स्वाद लेकर खाए जाते हैं और बंगाली मिठाइयों की केवल रस भरी चर्चा ही नहीं होती वे कई शहरों में पहले की तुलना में अधिक उपलब्ध है यानी स्थानीय व्यंजनों के साथ ही अब अन्य प्रदेशों के व्यंजन पकवान भी प्रायः हर क्षेत्र में मिलते हैं और मध्यम वर्गीय जीवन में भोजन विविधता अपनी जगह बना चुके हैं कुछ चीजें और भी हुई है मसलन अंग्रेजी राज तक जो ब्रेड केवल साहबी ठिकानों तक सीमित थी वह कस्बों तक पहुंच चुकी है और नाश्ते के रूप में लाखों करोड़ों भारतीयों घरों में सेकी तली जा रही है खानपान की इस बदली हुई संस्कृति से सबसे अधिक प्रभावित नई पीढ़ी हुई है जो पहले के स्थानीय व्यंजनों के बारे में बहुत कम जानते हैं पर कई नए व्यंजनों के बारे में बहुत कुछ जानती है स्थानीय व्यंजन भी तो अब घटकर कुछ ही चीजों तक सीमित रह गए हैं बंबई की पाव भाजी और दिल्ली के छोले कुलचों की दुनिया पहले की तुलना में बड़ी जरूर है पर अन्य स्थानीय व्यंजनों की दुनिया में छोटी हुई है जानकार ये भी बताते हैं कि मथुरा के पेड़ों और आगरा के पेठे नमकीन में 
अब वह बात कहाँ रही यानी जो चीज़ें बची हुई है उनकी गुणवत्ता में फर्क पड़ा है फिर मौसम और ऋतुओं के अनुसार फलों खाद्यान्नों से जो व्यंजन और पकवान बना करते थे उन्हें बनाने की फुर्सत भी अब कितने लोगों को रह गई है अब गृहिणियों या कामकाजी महिलाओं के लिए खरबूजे के बीज सुखाना छिलना और फिर उनसे व्यंजन तैयार करना सचमुच दुस्साध्य है यानी हम पाते हैं कि एक ओर तो स्थानीय व्यंजनों में कमी आई है दूसरी ओर वे ही देसी विदेशी व्यंजन अपनाए जा रहे हैं जिन्हें बनाने पकाने में सुविधा हो जटिल प्रक्रियाओं वाली चीज़ें तो कभी कभार व्यंजन पुस्तिकाओं के आधार पर तैयार की जाती है अब शहरी जीवन में जो भागम भाग है उसे देखते हुए यह स्थिति स्वाभाविक लगती है फिर कमर तोड़ महंगाई ने तो लोगों को कई चीज़ों से धीरे धीरे वंचित किया है जिन व्यंजनों में बिना मेवों के स्वाद नहीं आता उन्हें बनाने पकाने के बारे में भरा कौन चार बार नहीं सोचेगा खानपान की जो एक मिश्रित संस्कृति बनी है इसके अपने सकारात्मक पक्ष भी है गृहिणियों और कामकाजी महिलाओं को अब जल्दी तैयार हो जाने वाले विविध व्यंजनों की विधियां उपलब्ध है नई पीढ़ी को देश विदेश के व्यंजनों को जानने का सुयोग मिला है भले ही किन्हीं कारणों से और किन्हीं खास रूपों में क्योंकि यह भी एक सच्चाई है कि ये विविध व्यंजन इन्हें निखालिस रूप में उपलब्ध नहीं है आज़ादी के बाद उद्योग धंधों नौकरियों तबादलों का जो एक नया विस्तार हुआ है उसके कारण भी खानपान की चीज़ें किसी एक प्रदेश से दूसरे प्रदेश में पहुंची है बड़े शहरों के मध्यम वर्गीय स्कूलों में जब दोपहर के टिफिन के वक्त बच्चों के टिफिन डिब्बे खुलते हैं तो उनसे विभिन्न प्रदेशों के व्यंजनों की एक खुशबू उठती है हम खानपान से भी एक दूसरे को जानते हैं इस दृष्टि से देखें तो खानपान की नई संस्कृति में हमें राष्ट्रीय एकता के लिए नए बीज भी मिल सकते हैं बीज भली भांति तभी अंकुरित होंगे जब हम खानपान से जुड़ी हुई दूसरी चीज़ों की ओर भी ध्यान देंगे मसलन हम उस बोली बानी भाषा भूषा आदि को भी किसी न किसी रूप में ज़्यादा जानेंगे तो किसी खानपान विशेष से जुड़ी हुई है इसी के साथ ध्यान देने की बात यह है कि स्थानीय व्यंजनों का पुनरुद्धार भी जरूरी है जिन्हें अब एथनिक कहकर पुकारने का चलन बढ़ा है ऐसे स्थानीय व्यंजन केवल पांच सितारा होटलों के प्रचारार्थ नहीं छोड़ दिए जाने चाहिए पांच सितारा होटलों में वे कभी कभार मिलते रहे पर घरों बाजारों से गायब हो जाए तो यह एक दुर्भाग्य ही होगा अच्छी तरह बनाई पकाई गई पूड़िया कचौड़िया जलेबिया भी अब बाजारों से गायब हो रही है 
मौसमी सब्जियों से भरे हुए समोसे भी अब कहाँ मिलते हैं उत्तर भारत में उपलब्ध व्यंजनों की भी दुर्गति हो रही है अचरज नहीं कि पहले उत्तर भारत में जो चीज़ें गली मोहल्ले की दुकानों में आम हुआ करती थी उन्हें अब खास दुकानों में तलाशा जाता है यह भी एक कड़वा सच है कि कई स्थानीय व्यंजनों को हमने तथाकथित आधुनिकता के चलते छोड़ दिया है और पश्चिम की नकल में बहुत सी ऐसी चीज़ें अपना ली है जो स्वाद स्वास्थ्य और सरसता के मामले में हमारे बहुत अनुकूल नहीं है तो यह भी रहा है कि खानपान की मिश्रित संस्कृति में हम कई बार चीज़ों का असली और अलग स्वाद नहीं ले पा रहे अक्सर प्रीति भोजन और पार्टियों में एक साथ ढेरों चीजें रख दी जाती है और उनका स्वाद गड्ढ होता रहा रहता है खानपान की मिश्रित या विविध संस्कृति हमें कुछ चीजें चुनने का अवसर देती है हम उसका लाभ प्रायः नहीं उठा रहे हैं हम अक्सर एक ही प्लेट में कई तरह के और कई बार तो बिल्कुल विपरीत प्रकृति वाले व्यंजन परोस लेना चाहते हैं इसलिए खानपान की जो मिश्रित विविध संस्कृति बनी है और लग यही रहा है कि यही और अधिक विकसित होने वाली है उसे तरह तरह से जांचते रहना जरूरी है